Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor of The Economist, and this is Money Talks. Coming up this week... What kind of reception will Venezuela's debt proposal receive? Probably ice cold, certainly from creditors who have anything to do with the United States. And why has Prince Alawalid's arrest rattled markets? This is pretty unprecedented in any Arab monarchy. This is really monumental, a change in business practice in the kingdom for decades. But first, bubbles. Like the South China Sea bubble and the dot-com bubble... There's one in the world of ICOs, initial coin offerings. People are buying tokens in companies with bitcoins or ether, and this market has exploded. But with what consequences? Ludwig Ziegler, our technology editor, is here. Ludwig, let's describe the scope of the bubble to start with. How big is it and what sort of things are, are going on? I mean, it's, it's actually relatively small, I should say. It's like free billion dollars have been raised uh, using ICOs. And to put that in, in perspective, that's perhaps 2% of Apple's share price or free. Uh, so it's, it's, it's not huge, but it's potentially rather important and has been growing quite quickly. And can you give some examples of recent ICOs? Uh, yes, but I mean, let me first explain what, what an ICO <laughs> is, because otherwise uh, it's difficult to understand. So it's, it's like crowdfunding, uh, like Kickstarter, but using blockchain technology. And uh, blockchain, as some of you or many of you will know, is the technology underlying uh, Bitcoin. It's, it's a big ledger. It's an immutable ledger. Uh, um, and so this technology is used to uh, raise funds. So you send uh, uh, some Ether or some yeah, Ether in that case, in most cases, to a smart contract. A smart contract is a little program that lives on the Ethereum blockchain, which is another Bitcoin-like uh, system, and that smart contract then issues tokens, and these tokens are like shares in a project. So an initial coin offering is like Kickstarter, you say, but differs from it that it's on the blockchain. Is that the only difference? It's uh, less regulated. Uh, basically, anything goes. There are no real prospectuses. Uh, there's only white papers. There's all kinds of kind of pre-sales, people getting in early on the deal. and uh, You make it sound like a, a, a perfect vehicle for the crook. It's in a way, it's yeah, I mean, it's a perfect vehicle for the crook, but it's also a perfect vehicle to experiment with, with things rather than kind of having to follow rules, which you would have to if you were doing an IPO, an initial public offering. That's what happens on stock exchanges. But I mean, you asked me for examples. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're funny ones and increasingly funny ones. Uh, so there's some synthetic rhino horn uh, product uh, some company wants to get funding for, and they issue tokens called Horn. Uh, then there is uh, a DJ uh, who wants to tokenize himself. And I should to say tokens are the coins, kind of. Uh, that's that's the name for the, the term of art for those shares. Tokenize himself at some concert in, in, in Zurich on November 9th. And then there is a, a coin called Sin. Uh, it's an app where you can uh, confess 
and you can donate some money, some ether, which are worth your, your sins, and then, then you get sent back some tokens, which are called sin. So they, I mean, that's actually, I should say, that's, a, that's an art project. But I mean, that gives you the flavor of the type of things that, that are being marketed uh, uh, as ICOs. Now, they're serious ones. They're very interesting projects, and that, that's the point. It looks like a bubble. It looks much like the, the, the South Sea bubbles. Undertakings of great advantage are being sold, like perpetual motion machines and, and those things. Uh, but they're serious things. They're people trying to create new types of organizations with that. So if on the one hand, it's all still quite small scale, on the other, some quite useful, interesting things are coming out of it. Is there a problem? Should regulators be doing anything about there this? There is, uh, to some extent, a problem because these ICOs are increasingly sold or marketed to retail investors on kind of on kind of dodgy white papers, and 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 the retail investors don't really know what's going on, and they certainly will lose their money. And I think regulators are worried about that, and that happened in particular in China and South Korea, and so China has banned ICOs completely. South Korea has done the same. In uh, in the West, the SEC, uh, the American regulator, is is not that draconian, but they have pre- made pretty clear that a lot of the the token sales of the ICOs and token sales is another name for that are, are basically the tokens are securities and should be regulated as such. As such, so only sold to accredited uh, uh, investors, or they have to be registered uh, and all of that. And the SEC has also gone after celebrities. Because celebrities have started to market uh, these token sales, um, Paris Hilton, uh, the boxer Mayweather, and uh, the SEC has said uh, this is uh, illegal if uh, these celebrities don't clearly state how much money they got or that they're being paid basically by the the, uh, the issuers of the tokens. Other problems, I mean, there's there are many scams. I mean, this, as you rightly say, it's unregulated. It's kind of it's a scammer's paradise, uh, and if it's not a scam, a lot of stuff will just not not work. We described it all the way through as a bubble. Is it possible to to say with any sort of certainty when or if this bubble might pop? No, I mean that's that's uh, always kind of you, you see a bubble, you, you know it's a bubble when you see. But I mean, predicting when it's it, it'll be it'll pop. I mean, it's the same like Bitcoin. I mean, we've we've always said Bitcoin at three thousand or four thousand dollars is a bit uh, too much. Now it's at more than seven and a half thousand or something like that. Uh, so, so I'd be careful. But I mean, it 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 will collapse at some point. At, at some point, you'll have the Enron token or something like that. But I mean, let, let me add what the good stuff is. So, so the idea is that if you sell tokens, shares uh, in a project to all uh, uh, involved, the developers of the project, the users uh, uh, of a service uh, uh, and, and, and like, they all kind of have an incentive to, to work together to make this product or this project uh, worth more, to, to expand the network. And so uh, uh, it, it's almost like a a new form of cooperative. For example, there is a company called or a project called Filecoin, and you can earn Filecoin by uh, offering your hard disk as a storage space for digital goods, or you can spend Filecoin by uh, paying others to store your your uh, files, and that could actually create a very interesting uh, decentralized service. And that may be a way out, a way to uh, avoid a world which is only dominated by big online firms, as we have now. Ludwig Siegler, technology editor, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Simon. Well, what about you, listeners? Have you bought any tokens in an ICO, an initial coin offering? What are your thoughts on this bubble? Please get in touch via Twitter, at Economist Radio, 
or email us at radioeconomist.com. Next, let's move to Venezuela, which looks as if it's moving even closer to the messiest sovereign default in recorded history. In a confusing announcement, President Nicolas Maduro decreed last week that he'd restructure Venezuela's roughly $60 billion worth of traded bonds. To explain all this, I'm joined by Dan Rosenheck, the editor of The Economist's data team. Dan, for months, it seems now, we've been talking about the prospect of a Venezuelan default, but always the government has seen absolutely determined, come what may, even at the cost of its own people's suffering, to keep repaying its debt. What's changed? I think what's changed is just the simple math of the situation. They have, as you say, been doing absolutely everything they possibly can to stay current. They have slashed imports all the way to the bone. And there's just not enough money anymore in that economy, essentially, because they've systematically ransacked it for years. Uh, They probably would have defaulted already if they hadn't received so much external support from foreign patrons, Russia and China principally. And it's totally possible that um, one of those countries could come to bail them out once again. But uh, if they don't get any more assistance, uh, the coffers are just empty. As you're hinting from the West, outside Russia and China, there's not much sympathy for Mr. Maduro or his regime. What sort of reception is he likely to get from Venezuela's creditors? Probably ice cold, certainly from creditors who have anything to do with the United States, because in August, after uh, Maduro essentially replaced the Venezuelan parliament with a sham organ called the Constituent Assembly that does the president's bidding, the United States imposed sanctions on Venezuela that both prevent any American people or entities from dealing with a number of named officials, including his vice president, Tarek al-Assami, who the U.S. Treasury Department has named a drug kingpin, and also has prevents them from dealing in any new issues of Venezuelan debt. So since any sort of refinancing or restructuring like the one Maduro is calling for would involve new bonds, as it stands under current American rules, no American entities could buy those, which would pretty much um, stop the process before it ever gets going. Now, I describe this as the messiest sovereign default ever. Is that why? Is that, or is, are there other factors that make it difficult? That would stop the default resolution process from ever even getting off the ground. If there were to be any sort of attempt at working out uh, who owes what to whom and how to uh, find a solution that works best for creditors and Venezuela, given the country's very limited ability to pay, it would almost certainly involve years and potentially even a decade of battles in the courts if the previous example of the Argentine default of 2001 is any indication. Unlike Argentina, which had very few assets abroad and therefore very few pieces of property that creditors could seize, Venezuela's state oil company uh, is extremely vulnerable. It owns Sitco, which is a refiner in the United States. It owns a fleet of tankers that travel in international waters. And these assets would likely be uh, impounded to the extent that foreign uh, courts could get their hands on them as soon as possible. And then there would be all sorts of acrimony between different creditors claiming first dibs on whatever is available. And the complicated structure both of Pedavesa, the state oil company, in and of itself, and the fact that it's essentially indistinguishable from the Venezuelan government is likely to make battles between creditors almost as acrimonious as those between creditors as a group and Venezuela. Dan Rosenheck, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. 
And finally, we turn to last weekend's dramatic events in Saudi Arabia, with the detention on suspicion of corruption of a number of senior figures, including members of the royal family. Investors are especially shaken by the arrest of the man dubbed the Arabian Warren Buffett, Prince Alawalid bin Talal. I'm joined now by our Middle East correspondent, Nick Pelham. Nick, why has this event shaken investors so much? We're talking about the richest state in the Arab world, which and a total sort of revolution in business practice in dealing with the, the kingdom. The extent of the purges, the extent of the what amounts to nationalization of uh, assets is pretty unprecedented in any, any Arab monarchy. It really amounts to sort of the scale that we have seen in revolutions in uh, Iraq and, and, and under Saddam Hussein. This is really monumental, monumental and a change in, in, in business practice in the kingdom for decades. Looking for a moment specifically at Prince Al-Walid, I mean, he's, he's very well known, of course. He's one of the world's wealthiest men, has stakes in newsgroup, Citigroup, Twitter, you talked about this being an effective nationalisation. Is that what's happened? Have all those stakes now gone to this, in effect, to the Saudi Arabian government? Uh, yes, and it, it extends far beyond uh, Al Walid himself. It extends to most of the the grandsons of uh, Abdulaziz, at least the most prominent amongst them, the sons of uh, former kings. It, it amounts to sequestration, a confiscation of of their assets. They've been frozen. This has enormous ramifications for their global business ties, many who deal with uh, not just with Saudi Arabia, but with the companies that uh, these men uh, owned around the world, um, whether it's uh, Citigroup or, or uh, Twitter, are going to be very nervous about what it's going to mean for their own business dealings. And in some ways, it's turning what had been this sort of accepted business, or the operational answer, the accepted business class in Saudi Arabia, into something akin to kind of the Revolutionary Guard in Iran. It won't be clear who foreign investors are going to be dealing with. And it pretty much sort of centralizes all economic dealings in the kingdom through um, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the new and young, ambitious crown prince. We've talked on this program before about Mohammed bin Salman, and he's been presented as a reformer, and in particular as the architect of the scheme for listing and raising huge amounts of money through uh, Aramco, the big oil company. Does this change our view of what he's about? I think it confirms in many ways our view of what he's about. He is somebody who is very much a, a modernizer, if that means that he wants to centralize authority to, in many ways, replaces what had been a, a, a creaking oligarchy, a sort of family business into what pretty much now looks like a, a one-man rule. He uh, is consolidating power very much under his own control. Saudi Arabia increasingly looks like a a one-man show. Um, it's significant that this new anti-corruption body that he set up is um, a body which he chairs. This is not really a due process. And I think it's going to worry many investors, not least though sort of 3,000 or so who flew to Riyadh uh, a couple of weeks ago um, uh, for an investment conference in the Ritz-Carlton, which has now become sort of some luxury prison for many of the princes who have now been detained. It's also telling how, how this is being received on the street in, in, in Saudi Arabia. Um, in many ways, this uh, old um, oligarchy was seen as kind of sucking up the, the, the best assets of the kingdom. And at the moment, this is being sold very much as a renationalization of assets, which should have belonged to the, to the kingdom itself. And so far, appears to have been greeted with a degree of um, jubilation, unlike the extreme nervousness that uh, uh, investors sort of worldwide have, have, have seen this changing of the guard. Nick Pelham, thank you very much. Well, that's all for this episode of Money Talks. 
To read more about everything discussed in the show, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. And please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.